When I was in my mid-teens, around the age of 16 and 17, that would have been 1962-1963, there was a popular television program. It was known by various titles, sort of TW, 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 TW3, or to give it its full title, that was the week that was. It was fronted by David Frost, and it was a satirical and at times sometimes savage review of the events of the preceding seven days. I do remember, however, one program that was slightly a little bit different. It was much more somber and sympathetic, and it was put out the week that President Kennedy was assassinated, and they actually did a pretty good job in the light of those dreadful circumstances. Why am I talking about that was the week that was? Well, the verse after where we finished our reading, which is verse 12 of John chapter 2, it talks about the Lord and it says, After this he went down to Capernaum. And I think the Lord inwardly might have said to himself as he moved to Capernaum, that was the week that was. He would have been reflecting back, if you like, on the events of the preceding seven days, which had culminated in the marriage uh, in Cana. Uh, Now he was moving on. So that was the week that was. And I want to look at that week that took place. And as I say, we're going to look at it both this morning and this evening as well. And I'll be giving you a number of headings to consider the uh, verses that we have read. Uh, And the first heading is very simple. It is called the run-up. The run-up. Of course, it's the run-up to the marriage of Cana that I'm thinking of. And so it will, in fact, uh, cover uh, quite a, a number of verses. And we're beginning in verse 19 where we started our reading. Uh, And in verse 19 we see that uh, a number of priests and uh, Levites and so on who had been sent out to, if you like, monitor the activities uh, of John the Baptist. Obviously uh, the reputation of John the Baptist was growing, the influence of John the Baptist was growing. And it's quite likely that the ruling religious authorities in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, which was the the great council of 70 members, uh, made up mostly of Sadducees, which is a surprise because they were a smaller sect than the Pharisees, but they seemed to hold the monopoly uh, where the Sanhedrin was concerned. But they'd obviously dispatched this delegation uh, to monitor what John was doing at the River Jordan. And so we, we find that uh, in verse 19, and they ask uh, a simple question uh, of John, who art thou? And in verse 20 it says, he confessed and uh, denied not. So he obviously said, well, I'm John. You know, he answered their question quite simply. But he knew that that question, it really wasn't just, who are you, what's your name, sort of thing. They were really inquiring of him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ who has been promised? And that's why at the end of verse 20, he says, I am not the Christ. And then we find uh, in verse 21 that having learnt that he's not the Christ, then the delegation home in on a couple of other specifics. In verse 21, they ask, are you Elias? 
And he says, I'm not. Well, of course, they're referring to a a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, which talks about Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And they're wondering, is he the manifestation of that prophecy? And he says he's not. Of course, the Lord himself later in Matthew chapter 11 tells people, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist was, if you like, the fulfillment of that prophecy of Malachi 4. Not a literal uh, reappearance of Elijah, but obviously John came in the spirit of Elijah, and that was the meaning of that. Uh, Elijah uh, was fearless and forthright. And I think we could say that John the Baptist likewise was pretty fearless and forthright. But anyhow, uh, they ask him, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. And then they switch tack and they say, well, aren't thou that prophet? And of course, what they're referring to is, I think in particular, the prophecy or the prediction in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when God through Moses said that down the line there would be another great prophet like unto Moses, uh, and you were to hearken unto him. And, uh, of course, this is the expectation the people had for this great prophet who would be the Messiah. And again, John says, no, I am not that particular person. So, he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet. So they then say to him, who art thou again? And in verse 23, we get John's answer to that question. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. He's referring to the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, which predicted a future prophetic figure who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare, if you like, for the Messiah is coming. And so John does admit to who he considers himself to be. But he then goes on to say that uh, he is a a lesser figure. Uh, He points to someone who is amongst them and that he would uh, be the greater figure, not John. Uh, In verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptized with water, but there stands one among you whom ye know not. So John, whilst he was saying that he would be the forerunner of the Messiah, he was downplaying his ministry. He was seeking to elevate the Messiah who was actually in their midst, even though they didn't know it. And so it's interesting that on day one of the, that was the week that was, uh, Christ was there to observe the work and the witness of John the Baptist. And it's good to know that the Lord is observing the work and the witness of those who are called to be his people. So that was day one. Uh, and then day two, it uh, stretches from verses 29 through to 34. And uh, we find, in fact, that John identifies uh, Christ as God's all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. In verse 29, it says, The next day John sees Jesus coming on to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. This is clear sacrificial language. The Jews would have understood this in terms of the temple going up to make sacrifice for sin. 
And John identifies Christ as the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. This would be far superior to the symbolic but ineffective animal sacrifices that were daily offered, if you like, in the temple grounds. And John refers back in verses 30 to 34, he refers back to what happened when he had previously baptized Jesus in the Jordan. Uh, This incident that we are reading about here was a period of time after the original baptism of the Lord in the River Jordan. Uh, John MacArthur uh, says this, the events in these verses, that's verses 19 to 34, took place just a few months after John's baptism of Jesus. Jesus had previously come down to Bethabara. He had been baptized by John. And after his baptism, he went into the wilderness. And there, of course, he was tempted for 40 days and so on. And now he's making his way back up again. It's interesting that this place, Bethabara, it literally means the house of passage. And if you like, at the Lord's original baptism and then going down into the wilderness to be baptized and now going back up again past Bethabara, it's really marks the passage from his everyday mundane human life into the role of now being the prophet of God. He was moving from secular employment, if you like, into being fully about his father's business. And that's why I think Bethabara, the house of passage, marks this passage from the secular, if you like, into the full-time spiritual uh, and so on. So on day two, John identifies Christ and he validates his divine credentials because he refers back to the baptism and what had happened there and so on. We move now to day three, and this is verses 35 through to 39. Verses 35 through to 39. Uh, And again, the Lord uh, is back, and once more, John identifies him as the Lamb of God, And this time it's in the presence of two of the disciples of John himself. And these disciples are obviously interested to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ. They start to follow him. And the Lord turns around and says, what seek ye? Uh, And they refer to him as rabbi, which means master. And the Lord says, well, come and see. You can see where I'm staying and so on. And it says, they came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Several commentators give you options about whether the tenth hour is referring to uh, Jewish time or Roman time. Uh, Roman time, it would have been 10 a.m. in the morning, Jewish time, it would have been four o'clock in the afternoon. I kind of tend to favor the four o'clock in the afternoon because I think they would have been following after Jesus. And if he invites them to come and see where he lives and abide with them, it's probably later afternoon, I think, that that would have happened. But anyhow, uh, on that particular day, uh, we find that uh, John has once more identified Christ as the Lamb of God. And uh, two of his own disciples, they start to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Moving on then to day four, we're moving through the days of the week. As I say, we come to verses 40 through to 42. And uh, we find out that one of the two disciples who had followed the Lord and had gone to stay with him that night was Andrew. And uh, what does Andrew do? Well, the first thing he does is he goes and finds his brother Simon. And he says to him, he doesn't say, I think we have found the Messiah. He says, we have found the Messiah. He was fully persuaded that whatever Bible study the Lord had given Andrew and the other disciple that the previous night and so on, they were fully persuaded that this man was the promised Messiah. And so uh, Andrew goes and he fetches uh, Simon and uh, it says in verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas. Uh, I like this word, when Jesus beheld him. Uh, I I think there's a a meaning here that when Jesus took a good, long, hard look at him, I think the Lord is assessing him, weighing him up, and so on. And he thought, you know, there's... There's real potential with this man. Yes, he will have his moments, but he will be a tremendous disciple for me. And so he he renames him Cephas, which, as it said, means stone. In fact, it's not just an ordinary stone. It means rock. He's not the rock upon which the church is founded, which some who profess to be Christian would believe. Rather, the great declaration that he made at Caesarea Philippi, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the rock upon which God and in Christ is building his church. But as I say, he was the one uh, who was moved to utter that great declaration. And on that rock of his statement, Christ is building his church. So, uh, as I say, uh, we find that at the end of day four, uh, the tally of followers of disciples has reached three. There's Andrew, there's Simon Peter, and most commentators would believe that the third one, although he's not named, is the author of the gospel, and that is John himself. So we have four days down, and we come now to day five. And this covers verses 43 through to 51. Verses 43 through to 51. And we find that the Lord is now starting to head north up towards the Galilee area. And uh, on the way, we find in verses 43 and 44, he calls a man called Philip. And Philip would have been known presumably to Andrew and Peter because in verse 44 it says he was of Bethsaida, which of course is a city on the shore of Lake Galilee. So the Lord calls Philip. And what does Philip do? Well, Philip does a bit like Andrew. Philip immediately wants to go and get somebody else to introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so In verses 45 through to 51, we notice that Philip finds Nathanael. And Nathanael is a bit skeptical uh, at the start. Uh, He hears about this Jesus of Nazareth. And his reaction is, well, uh, can any good come out of Nazareth? He obviously didn't have a very high opinion of the place called Nazareth 
or the people who lived in it. But anyhow, the Lord talks to him. And of course, uh, he described him as an Israelite in whom was no guile. And he said, I, I saw thee below the fig tree before Philip called you. And on the basis of that, Nathaniel was fully persuaded that Jesus was the Son of God and the King of Israel. So as the uh, day five comes to an end, they're on their way to Galilee, and the tally of disciples has risen to five with the addition of Philip and Nathaniel. Now, that takes us to the end of chapter 1 and then through to the beginning of chapter 2. And I believe uh, in that gap, if you like, between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, I believe there is a sixth day, and I'll explain in a moment why, which we don't have any details for, but it most likely was the, the finishing off of the journey up to Galilee. And then we come to uh, the uh, verse in Uh, verse 1 in chapter 2, and it says, and the third day. Now what that means is, on this day that the marriage is taking place, if you can picture that as the third day, and when it says the third day, it's referring back to specific details prior to that. And the specific details we have prior to that were when Philip and Nathaniel had their interaction with the Lord. So if the wedding is the third day and Philip and Nathaniel was the first day, there has to be a day in between those, which would have been, uh, there's no detail given. They were simply moving forward to finish the journey to Galilee. So that is why most commentators, and I would agree with them, believe that between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, there was simply a day when they moved forward as a group and completed the journey to Galilee. So that, if you like, is the run-up to the wedding, which we then start to read about at the beginning of chapter 2. So we've had the run-up, and my next heading is quite simply the rejoicing. In verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 2, marriage is mentioned in both of those verses. And that is why I've given the heading rejoicing. Because marriage is a time of rejoicing. Uh, We have the bride and the groom and the happy families and friends of both families. They're obviously getting together for a time of great rejoicing. And so this would have been happening here as well. Uh, The bride and the groom, family and friends were there to celebrate this great occasion. So they would have been rejoicing. So that is one reason for the rejoicing at the marriage. But I believe there would also have been another reason for rejoicing, particularly where uh, Jesus and Mary, if you like, were concerned. And that was simply the fact that Jesus had been down, uh, down in, uh, to see John the Baptist. He'd been baptized. He'd been in the wilderness. He'd come up again. And so he had been separated for a period of time from his mother. And so they were being reunited again in this 
celebration of the marriage. And perhaps, although we're not told explicitly, there might have been other members of the family of Jesus, uh, his uh, siblings, if you like. Uh, they could possibly have been there. We, do, we don't know for sure. But certainly there was a reunion between Jesus and his mother, Mary. And that would have also have been an occasion for rejoicing. So in verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 2, we see the rejoicing. And then from verses 3 through to 5, and this is as far as we will go this morning, uh, we see what I would call the realization. We've had the run-up, we've had the rejoicing, and now we see the realization. And what is this realization? Well, we read about it at the beginning of the third verse. There is a looming crisis, a looming embarrassment on the horizon because uh, it says there, and when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. Now, this would have been a real embarrassment if uh, all the guests were there and the party, if you like, is in full swing. And all of a sudden, the wine that had been organized for the marriage feast suddenly runs out. So there is a realization on Mary's part that there's a potential embarrassment here. And so what does she do? Well, she mentions the problem to Jesus. As I say, uh, she said to Jesus, they have no wine. You know, whilst Jesus was her son in human terms, I think she could never possibly have forgotten what Gabriel told her at the Annunciation when she was told that she was going to bear this child. Because Gabriel told her that he would be the son of the Most High. He would be the son of God. And so Mary would never have forgotten that. And no doubt over the years she had seen evidence that this was a special child, a special young boy, a special young man. And so she felt with this crisis on the horizon that he was the one to turn to. And so she uh, says uh, they have no wine. So how does he reply to her? Well, we read it in verse 4. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And I know that over the years, many people have thought, that was a pretty brusque response by the Lord. He says, Woman, what have I to do with thee? But I, I think we don't fully understand what the word that's translated woman really means because the Lord was certainly not being impolite. He was not being disrespectful. And again, uh, through reading various commentaries and so on, the word woman could probably more accurately equate to the word ma'am in the English language. And when I think of the word ma'am, I think of someone speaking to the queen, if you like, ma'am, dinner is ready. <laughs> ma'am, the guests are ready to come on, uh, to come in. In other words, it, it's a respectful term. It is not a cold or impolite terminology. Uh, and so uh, when we think of the Lord saying, woman, 
I think of another occasion when the Lord addressed Mary as woman. And of course, that was when he was hanging on the cross. In John chapter 19 and verses 26 and 27, he said, Woman, behold thy son. And he's certainly not being cold or disrespectful to Mary as he's dying on the cross. He is being ultra thoughtful and sympathetic towards her. And he's saying, ma'am, behold your son. He's committing his mother into the care of the apostle John. And he most likely did that because at that time his siblings were not believers and so he wanted to ensure that Mary was in the care of a true believer and that's why I believe he committed her into the care of John as he was dying on the cross. So as I say, uh, this expression woman, it is not being disrespectful. And then he says to her, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. I think what the Lord is seeking to do here is to gently tell Mary, you have human priorities in your mind, but now I have heavenly priorities in my mind. I have to be about my father's business And really, my father's business isn't going to be concerned with uh, the fact that the wine is running out or something like that. Uh, I like what Charles Ryrie in his Bible notes said this. He he paraphrased that expression of the Lord. He says, uh, that concerns you, so leave me alone, because the hour for manifesting myself as Messiah has not yet come. The Lord was gently trying to show Mary that her priorities were not his priorities. And I think that is what that verse 4 teaches. And I think that uh, realizing the reality of what Jesus had just said to her, the fact that his priorities were different to hers, Mary very humbly, if you like, drew back. And she directed the servants to listen to him. So I I think there's a a double realization in these verses on Mary's part. First of all, there's the practical realization that there's a problem with the wine. But secondly, and far more importantly, there is a practical realization of her position now in relation to her son. So, those verses from John 1, 19 through to John 2 and verse 5, we've seen the run-up, we've seen the rejoicing, and we have seen the realization. So what can we personally learn from what we have considered? First of all, the run-up, which covers verse 19 through to 51 of John chapter 1. Uh, we learn from Scripture that for the truth of something to be established, there must be at least two to three witnesses. And uh, first of all, for John the Baptist, he is quite open in affirming the divine credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It's interesting just to reflect back on the things that happened at the time of the birth of John the Baptist. Um, Zacharias, he's in the temple and the angel Gabriel appears to him 
and uh, tells him, you know, Elizabeth, your wife's going to have a child, and says, thou shalt call his name John. And then Gabriel goes on to say, and he shall go before him. And this is the Messiah that Gabriel was talking about in the spirit and power of Elias. In other words, Elijah. So there again is confirmation that the Malachi prophecy was fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. And then later on, after John the Baptist was born, Zacharias, his dumbness has been removed and he's able to talk and he prophesies and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he hath visited and redeemed his people and has raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets which have been since the world began. John the Baptist has been born. Zacharias, his dumbness is gone. He's able to talk and he declares that God has raised up an horn of salvation for us. Well, I think he's referring to the fact that Mary is in the earlier stages of pregnancy. Elizabeth had just given birth to John the Baptist, but they were also aware that Mary was expecting a child, and so he's referring to that special child as the horn of salvation that God has raised up. And I believe then that John the Baptist would have been very aware of his calling in life to be the forerunner of that special child. Because again, in Luke chapter 1, Zacharias says to John the Baptist, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. So early in life, John the Baptist would have been aware that he was a special child in the sight of God had a special mission, which was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And we find John testifying to the special person that the Lord Jesus Christ was. In verse 15 of John 1, which we didn't read, we only started at verse 19, but it says, John bear witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. John is affirming uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ Yes, uh, even though I'm six months older than, than him, he was before me. He's affirming the pre-existence of the uh, Lord Jesus Christ. And even though he has a great role to fulfill in being the forerunner of the Messiah, he acknowledges that Christ is the greater person than he is. And uh, he, he referred, he affirmed it again in verse 27, which we did read, John says, he it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latch I'm not worthy to unloose. Even though I have this great prophetic role to announce the Messiah's coming in relation to him, I'm not worthy to undo his sandals. In other words, I'm not even worthy to be his servant. When a master of the house would have come in with his feet dusty from the day, the servant would have gone down and undid the sandals, taken them off and probably washed the feet as well. And John the Baptist didn't consider himself uh, worthy of even having that role in relation to Jesus. So he affirms the divine credentials of the Lord Jesus. And also in John chapter 1, he affirms that whilst I baptize with water, 
There's one coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. My water baptism is merely symbolic, but there's coming one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit the real deal. And of course, that happens when someone is truly converted, for by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, and that happens at our conversion. So again, he is referring to this Messiah the divine credentials of the Messiah. So he's a first witness to Christ's divine credentials. But we have other witnesses in John chapter 1. In verse 41, uh, we read this. Uh, this is Andrew. He first finds his own brother Simon and says unto him, We have found the Messiah, which being interpreted is Christ. And so we find that Andrew affirms the divine credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't stop there. In verse 45, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. He's affirming this is the promised prophet, this is the Messiah. And so you have a third witness, Philip. But it doesn't stop there. If we go on to verse 49, we read the testimony of Nathanael. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. So we now have four witnesses affirming the divine credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would like to throw in a fifth witness. And that, of course, is the Apostle John who recorded these verses. Because in the opening verse of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So the Old Testament says you need to have two or three witnesses to confirm the truth of something. Well, here I believe we have five witnesses. Uh, And of course, five is the number of grace. And so I think this is a gracious affirmation, if you like, of the divine credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we can learn from the run-up. And then what about uh, the rejoicing? Uh, What can we learn from that. Well, of course, weddings, as I said, are times of great rejoicing. We see the, the lovebirds, the bride and the groom, they're finally united. And not only are they united, but family and friends are reunited who probably don't see each other from one wedding to the next, or sadly sometimes from one funeral to the next. But here, it's a happy occasion, and so there would have been rejoicing at this marriage of the unity, the coming together of the bride and the groom and the uh, reuniting of family and friends who had been living separate lives, if you like. Well, God's word tells us that there is an end of time marriage coming. We read of it in Revelation 19.9. It talks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this will take place at the end of the age. And in Revelation 21, we learn that the bride is the church of Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ is the groom. There will finally be this great unifying of the bride and the groom. And of course, those who will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb will, as far as the bride is concerned, the church, it will include all who constitute the church, including those who have already gone ahead. 
those who have passed from this scene of time. So whilst it will be a wonderful occasion for the bride, the believers, to be united with the groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be that grand reunion with those whom we have loved and who have died in Christ. We are going to have a tremendous time of rejoicing, double rejoicing, seeing the Lord but also saying those of our loved ones and friends who have gone before. Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for it. I know that most people, perhaps all here this morning, are members of the bride of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I have to ask, is everyone here in the church The true church, I mean the church that the Lord Jesus Christ is building. He's constantly issuing invitations to it through gospel messages, through tracts, through personal witness, and so on. Have you been born again of the Spirit of God? Have you been changed from an old sinner into a new creation in Christ Jesus? You know, there's rejoicing at the end of the age, when we meet Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But if you're not a Christian this morning, and you do come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be rejoicing today in heaven. Because the Bible tells us there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. So if you're not a Christian, I urge you to seek the Lord, his forgiveness, and his salvation. So we've had the run-up, which teaches us that Christ's divine credentials were fully affirmed. We have the rejoicing, the prospect of the marriage supper of the Lamb, of seeing Christ, and of being reunited with friends and loved ones. And then there was the realization And that was in verses 3 to 5 of John chapter 2. And uh, I would say, you know, fair play to Mary. She was looking around to see what was happening at the wedding, and she realized that the wine was running out. The resources, the human resources were running out. And you know, when it comes to the marriage supper of the Lamb, human resources run out. They are not sufficient to get you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is a problem because all our best endeavors fall short. They're like filthy rags, according to the book of Isaiah. So if you're not a Christian, I hope you realize that, that your best efforts will not get you to heaven. You need to be looking to Christ, the one that Mary pointed people She pointed people to Christ to solve the problem. And she told people to do what he said. And if you want to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lord's first words in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 were, Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, you have to let go of your best endeavors because they won't get you there. You need to change your mind, repent, Believe the gospel, which is that Christ has done all that is necessary to save for you, to save you. He has lived the righteous life that you can't live. He has died the death that you deserve to die. So, 
you need to be looking to Christ and him crucified. That is a realization that I personally became aware of on the 19th of August, 1984, when the Lord saved me. I realized that my human resources would never get me to heaven. And instead, I looked to Christ. Look unto him and be ye saved, were the words that uh, God used in the conversion of C.H. Spurgeon. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then look unto Christ and him crucified and be ye saved. So we've looked at a good number of the verses. And God willing, we will continue our study uh, next Sunday morning uh, from verse 6 through to verse 11. So may the Lord bless his word to our hearts this morning. Now we're going to turn again to our supplement for our closing hymn.